Welcome back to Trojan Talk. We are ready for spring football. We have so much to talk about today. I am Ryan Young, joined as usual, as always I could say, by Max It's been Brown. a minute. It's been a little bit. <laughs> but I haven't done any of these without you, so it's, uh, it's still the, the go-to podcast duo. Uh, Max go. Brown, the former USC quarterback, our Trojansports.com analyst, and we are going to dive into all the key comments from the assistant coach press conferences this week. We're going to run through all the positions and the storylines entering spring camp, which starts Tuesday. So we're going to cover it all. But first, as you know, I want to try and give you something free here. If you're not subscribed to TrojanSports.com, what are you waiting for? Now's the time. You know, As long as Rivals lets me keep throwing this promo out there, I'm going to keep pushing it. Right now, if you sign up for our spring special, get a new annual subscription, we'll give you a $49.50 gift code to the Rivals Fan Store, which has stuff for any team, but I assume you would want USC gear. You can go on and get USC jerseys, hats, shirts, shoes, socks, anything. Uh, so you're basically getting almost 50 bucks of free gear just for signing up and getting our great coverage all spring. And if you've been on the site lately, you've seen we've just been flooding the homepage with new stories, content, recruiting content, recruiting buzz is palpably different right now than it was previously. We'll touch on that too. I mean, there's a, there's a lot to cover and follow right now, so join up, take advantage of that promo, and uh, be a part of the team here. Without further ado, Max, good to have you back on. How are you? It's great to be back. Yeah, no, you uh, you sent me the rundown. I think uh, if you're listening to this, we got a lot to cover. It's going to be hard to, to fit it all in there. But with the press conferences, before spring ball, new coaching changes, new players, new jersey numbers now, we got a lot yeah. to cover. Let's get right into the, the topical stuff. On Tuesday, USC tried out all of its new assistant coaches, plus offensive coordinator Graham Harrell, for the first time since uh, all the defensive guys were hired. We had like 20 to 25 minutes with each of them. It was We were basically there for two, two and a half hours, just, just rolling through just tons of questions and a lot of insights were gained. It was our first chance to kind of get to know this new staff beyond just their bios and, and their Wikipedia page or whatever you all looked at when they were first hired. Max, did you get a chance to kind of follow along with all that? And, and if you had one thing that jumped out to you in that whole session, what was it? <laughs> The one thing that jumped out to me is kind of funny with the uh, the new special teams coach, Sean Snyder. I kind of felt like I was listening to John Baxter a little bit. Um, <laughs> like, I, I, I mean, I don't mean to dumb it down to that level. Obviously, they're different guys. But I, I thought it was funny because I actually had just seen his name just written in tweets and stuff. I'd never actually seen his face. And so when I watched the interview, uh, I watched it on YouTube, I, I kind of like chuckled at first. I was like, uh, USC fans were running John Baxter out of the uh, – or running out the door, yet uh, this guy looks uh, an awful lot like him. Uh, but I thought that was just funny. If you ask me for one thing that sticks out, that was uh, that was front of mind. I, I don't know how many true special teams gurus there are in the country. I mean, every team has a special teams coach, but you know that you made that comparison, and it is there. Like Baxter just lived and breathed special teams. That, that was his baby. Yeah. That's where his. His passion was is whether it worked or not. You know, it's a different story. Sean Snyder, same way. I, like his entire coaching career, that's what he's been. It's not like he's been a tight ends coach and uh, I'll do special teams too. No, he is just a special teams guru. He was a punter in college. He's an interesting hire because he spent his whole career in Manhattan, Kansas. Obviously, his father Bill Snyder is the legendary head coach of Kansas State, 
and this is his first real venture away from that comfort zone. But it was a great hire. And before we get into each guy, I just want to talk overall about the complexion of the staff and what they accomplished. Because we, our last podcast, we got deep into Todd Orlando, but we hadn't talked about the rest of the guys yet. There was a real strategy here. If you look at it, first they wanted to find a great defensive coordinator. I think, as we discussed last time, we both feel pretty good about the Orlando hire. Obviously, he needs a guy to help implement his system. So Craig Niver comes in, his uh, lieutenant at Texas for the last Texas and Houston for the last five years. So that all made sense. And then they really allocated the rest of the spots strategically. They knew that they needed to boost recruiting. They needed to make an impact, especially in Southern California recruiting, after signing one of the top 25 prospects in the state this last cycle. So they early on targeted Dante Williams, the, the ace recruiter who was at Oregon the last few years, an L.A. native, a guy who was beating them for recruits every year, pulling guys out of Southern California and up to Eugene. They get him away. It worked out for both sides. He wanted to be closer to his family in Los Angeles. They wanted to prioritize getting a guy like him. That worked out. Then they get Vic Soto from UVA. He's also from Southern California, Oceanside area, and really, like, listening to Tyler Orlando talk and then Vic Soto talk, I thought that was hearing the same guy in terms of their their kind of strategy and football ethos. But also, he, I think he's going to be a major recruiting asset, too. He's already been aggressive going after guys on the East Coast that he had relationships with, but he's from out here. He can connect with, with California recruits and also with, with some of the Polynesian recruiting base that is big for USC. And then they get Sean Snyder. They, we debated last time, would they get a true special teams coach or just kind of assign somebody that or, or, or have all the coaches sharing that duty. No, they, they wanted a special teams guru, and they, they go out and get one who's maybe as qualified as anybody. So you have to like the complexion of the staff. That said, Max, let's get into each of these guys, and I have a few talking points I want to hit. Let's start with Tyler Orlando and this defensive staff and what they want to do defensively. What jumped out to you just about the way they talked about his system, but really their mindset as defensive coaches. Yeah, it's funny you say mindset right there, and it felt like every answer every coach had mindset. The word mindset was said at least once, and in large part it was because of the the media members uh, like yourself asking them questions about physicality. Right, that's that's front of mind for SC fans. Is all right, sweet. We've we've talked uh, X's and O's for a while now. That was Clancy's mo. How do we take the next step, and how do we become physical? And to me, it was kind of funny because. Like the reality is, I mean, anyone that knows football knows this, there's no like magic drill, right? They're not going to go in there and do something drastically different than what the previous staff did. As I say yeah. that, someone might say, well, they could do more full contact periods and all that. Yes, that's fair. But in terms of drill work and all that, it's not going to be overly uh, th- that much different. So the word mindset, I think, does hold a lot of weight, right? It's how the coaches are talking to the players. It's how the coaches are preaching what they're saying. It's how like discipline and all that. It's how uh, what, 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 what kind of standard are they? are they setting and so all those things kind of flow into mindset and I just think the biggest thing above any above anything else whether a coach is from Southern California whether they're young whether they're old whether they're experienced I just think the idea of having a whole new fresh defensive staff to just flip the page is so healthy for this USC team I think it's nothing against the previous staff there's a lot of guys on that staff that had a lot of success and will go on to to have success at other spots in coaching but I just think the sheer 
idea that you have, hey, five new head coaches or four new head coaches on the defensive side, that's huge. It's a different voice talking to you. It's a different way of saying things. There's a new sense of urgency for all these guys. All these players have to re-earn your stripes. I don't care if you are Elijah Griffin. You had a great year. Yes, all things yeah. uh, pointed forward, he, he'll start next year. But you have to re-earn that stuff. It's, 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 it's starting from square one. And I think just on a human level in any walk of life, uh, any industry, just when you when you switch leadership, uh, starting from fresh there, as, as I think big, and we'll see come 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 spring ball that mindset of physicality. It's been talked about before. This isn't the first first time under Clay, Clay Helton it's been talked about. But right. this Todd Orlando and this staff get you over the hump. I think SC fans are hoping that, and it's a, it's a genuine wait and see uh, type of deal. That's the big question for sure. And the one thing you said there that I want to kind of hone in on is kind of practicing what you preach. And, I mean, if I didn't know better, you could say that these coaches basically were reading from the handbook of things that USC fans wanted to hear. Exactly, yeah. Of, but, you know, you, you can – I kind of wrote about this on, on Wednesday. All coaches use these metaphors and these nebulous comments and things to kind of add weight to their edicts and what they want to say. And it's bluster a lot of times. But – if you're sitting there staring at Todd Orlando, who's just burning intensity every second he's <laughs> exists on this planet, it was believable. I didn't feel like he was trying to sell me on anything. I just felt like, okay, this is what I'm about. You asked me a question, like, this is what I'm about. Yeah. Vic Soto, same way. Just just this quiet intensity. I mean, he was, you know, not a bombastic guy. He's just sitting there kind of you know, it's kind of laid back, but you can just tell him what he's saying, that he's not selling you a line. Like, this is what he believes every minute of every every day that he operates in this profession. Totally. I, yeah. I, I want to go through through some of those comments, and, and we can talk about them. Cool. It's because there, there were so many good quotes. And for those that didn't get to watch the press conferences or, or haven't heard this, I think it will help clue them into what we're talking about. Orlando. This goes... <laughs> Uh, he goes very deep into the metaphor realm here. He goes, there's some dark, dark valleys in that thing. You have to go in there and see what it's all about. If you've never been in those places that are really, really tough, then you're never going to know how to get through them. We're going to go through that. That's not lip service. It's not. It's part of the toll. Yeah. We're going pre- to practice physical. I can promise you that. He, he clearly had just total disdain for the fact that they have to go non-padded, non-contact their first two practices. Like he just, you could tell that he just has no interest in those sessions. All he kept talking about was the Saturday practice, the Saturday practice, which is their third practice. He goes, the Saturday practice, when we're knocking the living heck out of each other, that's when we'll find out what we're all about. That's when we're going to be playing American football. <laughs> yeah. And that, 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 that's going to be the biggest difference, right? You had Clancy, who's uh, from the NFL tree of, I mean, that stuff, it, it's, it's nice and cool, but it probably doesn't relate to full-grown NFL men as much. But for college kids, that's infectious. And that's going to be the biggest difference, I think, day one when me and you go out there on the on the practice field and you're observing the team. You're going to have a defensive quarter and that's probably going to be running around, yelling, getting on guys, running around the field, position group to position group. That's just not the case with Clancy. I think there's – I don't think that's necessarily bad. Not every defensive corner is a yeller, runner, screamer. But I think uh, Todd Orlando and his MO and his vibe, it feels like that's – I mean, that's, that, that's what I see needs at this point. Yeah, the point is not to look back now. I mean, we, you can rehash the Clancy tenure uh, as much as you want. It's over. We're moving on. But if you want to talk about two guys who are just so – polar opposites in everything and just in their their personality and their approach and in their intensity level uh usc got the complete opposite of clancy pendergast 
And again, the important thing to me, though, was, was hearing from the rest of the staff and kind of feeling like all these guys are on the same page. Uh, Vic Soto's buzzword was uh, violence. We're going to play violent. We're be violent out there. And so like two-thirds of the way through his press conference, someone finally asked him, they said, you keep mentioning violence. Uh, how, how do you define violence in the field? And he goes, define violence? I think you'll see it. You'll hear it. You'll feel it. Mm-hmm. Then, he, then he goes into this this really old school football vibe, and he goes, "The forward pass wasn't invented until years after football was, so it's kind of the roots of the game is violent physical front play with a ball and someone to go tackle him. I feel like this air raid and playing in space, the true roots of the game, the only thing that's left is this defensive line, offensive line, violent football up front. That's the type of football that I've been raised on, the type of football that I know this place is played, and the type of football that when you enter the Coliseum has to happen over and over again for it to go back to where it was. I mean, my goodness, if he he was just, he knew his audience. He, he knew his audience well. Yeah, no, he knew his audience well, and I think you touched on it earlier, but he has a nice balance, right? I mean, he has the, the violent, violent, violent when he's talking, but he also is... Like you said, when he was sitting there, he was just kind of easy going, right? It's not like he's yeah, yeah. trying to like when you when you watch Todd Orlando, he is staring through the camera. He is intense. Uh, but then, <laughs> but is. then when you when you talk about Vic Soto, he's he's more just kind of laid back, and this is just kind of it's a matter of fact. It's we're violent, we uh, we crush people, that kind of thing. And I think that's that's a cool balance because I think it's going to allow him to relate to players really well. And the fact that he is on the younger side, uh, I love that combo. He seems like a great hire. Um, I don't know the ins and outs of his backstory uh, as much, but I know he was at Virginia. Virginia is an ACC school that uh, has had a huge turnaround the past three years. He's part of that. He's brought up in kind of kind of good culture, Southern California guy. That feels like a that hire feels like a win for SC as well. Like you said, their strategy to all all of these hires. Uh, and at the end of the day, we're not going to know really anything until hey, week one when SC plays Alabama. But on paper right now, you got to like, given the state of where the program's at right now, you got to like the hires. Yeah, UVA goes from, from two wins to uh, the Orange Bowl in the span of four years, and they were top three in sacks last season with Vic. So uh, he's certainly going to match what Todd wants to do there in terms of being aggressive and creating chaos in the backfield. And, you know, Orlando said it. He, he goes, it's, it's, it's kind of special to get a bunch of guys that are – are all alpha dogs like like we are but also are humble enough to work together for the same cause and and kind of be on the same page so uh, again that was my biggest takeaway is that these guys really do seem meant for each other and it, it seems like it's going to all mesh together well we'll see how it goes the, the other big takeaway to me was the recruiting stuff and that's a huge part of the staff change ever we've talked plenty about how Clancy Pendergast was just disengaged from the process and Overall, defensive recruiting last year was not good. They they wanted to get some defensive backs. They they got none. They got a few defensive linemen. They got no linebackers. So they bring in an entire new defensive staff, and every one of these guys just seems fired up about recruiting. Uh, obviously, Dante Williams was the the buzzworthy hire there. But here in Orlando, talk about how much of an emphasis it is for him. Like he's putting a priority on this, and and Vic Soto. Yeah. That, to me, is that as encouraging as the on-the-field stuff because they have to turn the corner in recruiting. And I think these guys are uh, driven to do that. Totally. Yeah, I look at it in two, in kind of two buckets. On one hand, I'm sitting here saying, yeah, that's great. You get all the, all the great recruiters. 
but nothing's going to matter if, if, if SC starts losing games early. Like, I, I don't care what you're saying. Uh, if you're not winning, recruits aren't going to come. And then on the flip side, if you're not winning, the number one, or the number one question right now for every mom and dad that has an SC recruit is, hey, Coach Helton, are you going to be around when my kid gets there? And so that, the, I, like Dante Williams, great recruiter, uh, Orlando's all in, but that's something that's going to be very tough right now, uh, walking in or I guess talking to, uh, talking to families, and you're not really going to see that until the fall. That's the negative side of, the, side of it. The positive side of it is when SC does start winning and you have these guys on your staff, then I think there's going to be a huge sense of, uh, uh, of aggression in terms of getting on the recruiting trail, making things happen. And I think you'll be able to catch up and kind of reboot from the, uh, the past recruiting struggles a little bit faster because you do have a guy like Dante Williams in-house, Todd Orlando. And shoot, like you said, I, I, I don't know Vic Soto's uh, background recruiting, but he feels like a guy that could definitely go out on the trail and recruit. So to me, I look at it both ways. It doesn't matter until you start winning because the biggest question right now is, hey, is Clay Helton here long term? Uh, if you're a recruit, it's going to be hard to sign the dotted line if that's still up in the air again. I know we had the same conversation about four months ago, but it's even more so the case now. But after that, assuming SC is winning and the program's back on track, then I think it's full head of steam ahead. And as all these guys say, SC recruits itself. Uh, if you start winning, there's no magic formula. It's pretty, it's pretty simple. You win, you get guys on campus, you kind of fence off the uh, two-hour driving radius of Southern California, keep guys in-house, and uh, that's definitely the method to the madness. And it's, it's relatively straightforward. It's just a matter of uh, winning and getting it done. There's no question they go hand in hand. They have to win, and they have to have a new recruiting recruiting approach. And they they have at least the the latter half of that. I want to talk more specifically about that though. Instead of just speaking the generalities here, I've been out and about at seven on seven tournaments at uh, camps the last three weekends, three, uh, three or four weekends, and I'm just going to tell you that there is a palpably different buzz. Okay, for the last year, maybe year and a half, every recruiting conversation with a top prospect about USC involved, well, I'm just going to kind of wait and see what happens. I, I, I want to see how they do in the fall. I want to see what happens with, with the coaching staff. It was all a wait and see, guarded, or just absolutely disinterested approach. That was just the case. And, I mean, that's no surprise to hear because that, that played out in, in the results. So I'm, I'm out at these camps, and I've had so many people tell me what a game changer Dante Williams has been. What a, a game changer it was to go on campus for their junior day uh, five weeks ago and meet Tyler Lando and just kind of feed off his vibe and energy. The word I've heard multiple times is these guys have juice. They have energy. I'm back-to-back weekends. I'm out at a tournament, and I had a top offensive prospect, two different offensive guys come up to me and just start talking about Dante Williams and the buzz that they're hearing in their circles and in their group chats with guys that they're teammates with going, that's, that's going to be a game changer for USC. He's going to keep guys home. They've talked to guys who already feel differently about it. I've talked to guys who publicly have told me they feel differently about it. Anthony Beavers was a four-star defensive back, was committed to Oregon with Dante. He decommits two days after Dante's hired. He's, a, he's big in the USC. Damani Jackson, a huge 2022 safety, has already said, yeah, it, it definitely impacts the way I feel about things. Jalen Davies, four-star 2021 cornerback, said it makes his decision tougher, meaning that he was probably leaning a different direction, and now he has to really think about USC. Denzel Burke, a four-star cornerback from Scottsdale, Arizona, 
told me I've known Dante for years. I was big into Oregon. Now I'm really looking at USC. He's got me thinking that way. And uh, Kalen Bullock, a four-star local guy from Pasadena I talked to this week, same thing. He said, I wasn't really interested before. Now I am a lot. Like th- these, are, these are tangible responses to this staff that people are saying it does change things for us. Now the proof will be in the results. We'll see. But that buzz was not happening for the last year and a half. Like covering recruiting, USC recruiting the last year and a half was like pulling teeth. It was hard to find anything that could move the needle or get anyone excited because it just wasn't there. It's there now. We'll see what happens. But there is a palpably different buzz. And people aren't even talking about Clay's status now or wait and see. They're focused on this new staff and just the energy that's injected. Yeah, and I think you're right in everything you said. I think I come at it from the lens of maybe maybe uh, the, the, the player in me a little bit. I just think, yes, you're right. The buzz is there. The buzz is there. But at the end of the day, as we all know, there, it, it come fall if, 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 if SC's not winning. That's where things obviously fall. But I'm with you right so now. True. That, that, so true. That, that buzz is there. I think it's healthy. I think Dante's kind of uh, sparked the, the, the program, for lack of a better term. But we all know, hey, uh, come the fall, when these kids are actually having to put pen to paper, the factors that play are going to be a lot different. I think it's healthy, but it's just it's a totally different deal uh, talking in March than, than December, as you know. But I think the interesting thing to me is, and I've talked about this on some of my radio shows, this would be a different deal if, let's say, there was an early signing period in the summer. Uh, then, like that, that would be let's say the early yeah, signing period wasn't yeah. in December, but let's say the early signing period was in uh, summer. Then I would 100% be on board with what you're saying because if you can get guys to put pen and paper, uh, pen to paper before the season happens, before wins and losses are kind of getting sorted out, uh, then I'd be right with you. But to me, it's just uh, right now all these you could get you could have, they could have the number one class in the country. Shoot, I live this. I live this at SC. We had the number one recruiting class in the country all summer. We were loaded. We had like four and five stars. We had 20 commits. This is the class of 2013. All is well. Number one team in the country. As he proceeds to go seven and six, and the vibe in the summer was completely different two months later, all just because of wins and losses. And I know I'm not saying anything uh, people don't don't know, but I do want to temper it a little bit because I think the recruiting, it's nice and, and, and all that, but the reality is it's got to be the on-field stuff that drives it uh, first and foremost. I, I totally agree. I, I'm, I'm just It's just refreshing that there's actually some buzz where there, there wasn't totally. even that before. Totally. Um, I have another point on the recruiting here, and then we'll – We'll move on. We do want to go through our spring preview and look at all the positions, so I don't want to dwell too long on this. But there's been an interesting reaction among fans on our message board, on the Trojan Talk message board, and I see it on Twitter, that USC's been so aggressive in Texas with all the Texas offers because they have most of their staffs from Texas. Uh, these new guys, Vic Soto has been offering all these guys from the East Coast. And fans are like, well, what about Southern California? So I thought it was really important and telling that all these coaches on Tuesday made an emphasis to say that our priority is to to clean up in our backyard. So yeah, we're, they're offering us all over the country, but it doesn't mean that, that that they don't recognize that historically USC has just needed to really excel in its backyard, and 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 that's ninety percent of the job in in recruiting here. So Todd Orlando says you take this area right now and draw a ring around an hour radius maybe two hour radius and you keep the best players and you get them to come here you're going to be in great shape so that was really really important to us that we put together a staff like this top of their field but more importantly recruiters and then alpha dogs dante was asked 
if he could apply anything from Oregon's recruiting strategy to here. And he, uh, he almost took an affront to the question. He said, we're going to be the trendsetters. We're USC. Like I said, the whole thing for us is to take back the West. When you take back something you rightfully own, you don't copy others. You're the trendsetter. We're going to be first. And just lastly, Craig Niver, who obviously has spent most of his career in Texas, was asked about recruiting Texas and, and USC's ties there with the staff. And he quickly countered and said, we're hitting California first. Obviously, that's our backyard. That's our bread and butter. And then we'll go wherever we need to go outside of the supplement what we need. But we've got a great group of guys with uh, deep ties out here. So don't think that they've lost the focus that the key to success is recruiting Southern California. And I think, again, it starts with Dante being an L.A. guy. That yeah. is still the focus here. Totally, yeah, and I have one comment there. I think you'd be crazy not to offer some of those guys that you already have relationships with. I think uh, absolutely, yeah, I totally get the Southern California bread and butter, or uh, having that be your bread and butter. But the reality is, SC is not in the driver's seat right now, so you do have to offer kids and potentially prepare for a for a world where hey. Arizona State and Oregon, they're kind of poaching Southern California guys as well as Alabama and Clemson and whatnot. And so if you're a Vic Soto and you already have strong relationships with East Coast guys, hey, might as well uh, just offer them as well. You like them, the relationship's there. You still have been working the past few years. So I don't mind that at all, especially um, like the state of Texas as well. Todd Orlando, if he has strong relationships there, you can get good players. You can get people excited. I mean, uh, as I say that out loud right there, like one of the best players I played with was Ronald Jones. He's a Texas guy. If you have relationships there, there's no reason to just throw them out the door. But yes, your bread and butter is going to be in Southern California. Everyone knows that. But I don't mind. Uh, I don't mind those out of state offers right now to the to the least a bit, and because the relationship with a lot of those guys are probably already uh, so far along for a lot of those coaches. Yeah, USC's going to host a four-star defensive end, Aaron Armitage, from New Jersey here coming up this spring because Vic Soto had recruited them for the last two years at UVA. Yeah, I mean, it would be a waste to not leverage those relationships. So they're going to do both, but but don't think that Southern California is not the focus. Now, I just want to put a bow on, on the staff stuff and offer some perspective that I've gained from just talking to people around campus. I know that Athletic Director Mike Bone has uh, gotten a lot of backlash for keeping Clay Helton. But I will also tell you that Bone and his his associates, Brandon Sosna, his right-hand man, they were integral in this, this uh, staff overhaul process. I mean, obviously, if you ask them about it, they'll deflect to Clay and say, these are Clay's hires. It starts with him. But I've heard from enough people that, that they played a huge role in getting the ball rolling with Todd Orlando, it's been out there that they were well down the road with Dave Aranda at one point before he got the Baylor head coaching job. They were making power moves to start to say, we got to start with a defensive coordinator and build around that. And they had a game plan, they had a strategy, and they went from there. So for all the criticism that fans can still have about the decision to keep Clay Helton, if things don't go well this year, it all comes back to that. That's, that's all fair. But since that decision... I think you have to be encouraged by everything that's followed, filling out the staff. Can can you imagine if uh, SC swooped Dave Aranda, the highest paid assistant coach at the time in college football? That would have been a huge statement. You talk about uh, Mike Bone getting some backlash for keeping Clay. If, if they go and turn around and were somehow able to poach Dave Aranda, that would have been remarkable. Right? I, I would have been well, I would have been so impressed. I can tell you from what I've heard that it was it was very close to happening, and he wow. got a head coaching opportunity. So, so that that is that is real. That's not just a rumor. That that is real. That that was where they were going. Uh, all the while, 
they also had Tyler Orlando very high on their list. And when things didn't pan out with Aranda, they were able to pivot and uh, get a guy with 15 years of experience as a, as a defensive coordinator. All that said, I've also heard, and we heard it from the guy speaking Tuesday, that that Clay Helton was a factor in this. That the fact that he's such a likable guy and a he treats his staff well. People it, love working for him. That's that's it, everyone says exactly. that to a T. Yeah, and, and that's not the case across the country. I mean, there are a lot of hard asses in head coaching positions that make life miserable for their staffs. And so when guys are evaluating opportunities and uh, am I going to make a move, uh, am I going to come to this school, and they either know what Clay's about or they meet with him and get a sense for it, that was an asset in closing some of these deals. I'm going to tell you that he was, he was an asset as well along with or in conjunction with the administration and putting the staff together. Okay, let's get into our spring preview. Let's kind of break it down. Uh, spring practice starts Tuesday. What to expect? We're going to go defense first because that's, as you can tell from this conversation, where all the buzz is. And we got to ask Tyler Orlando about his scheme, about his defense Tuesday. And he made a point to say that he's going to be flexible and adjust to the personnel here. Specifically, there's going to be a mix of three down and four down fronts. And that was maybe the biggest question that we had when we talked about this a month ago, about his hire was how does USC's personnel adjust to what he's done with his 3-3-5 and, and going with a three-man front? Well, I, I, he made it pretty clear that he's, he's not rigid in that. He's going to be flexible, and he understands that these guys have been primarily playing in a, in a four-man uh, defensive front base defense. I can't just take them totally away from that. How did that strike you when, when you kind of heard him break that down Tuesday? Yeah, I wasn't surprised at all. Um, I know we in our last podcast we kind of talked about, hey, which way is he going to lean? Uh, but I knew he everything you read uh, during his time at Texas and before that he was a, a multiple guy. That's what you, that's the kind of the word they use. Uh, he's changing uh, which front he, he's three down, four down, and whatnot. But to me, the the, the biggest question, and we said it in my la- in our last podcast, it's still the biggest question now. And it's you have Drake Jackson can make the argument he's the best player on the team, one of the best players in the conference. Uh, when you do go three down, is he standing up or is he putting his hand down? I, if I had to put my money somewhere, I think he's probably going to be standing up into the boundary yep. and, and just elite pass rush type type of scenarios. But that's just different. Like like Todd Orlando said, that's different than what he had to do last year. Last year he was four down, his hand was in the dirt the whole time. So that dynamic is just interesting for me because if he is your your uh, your gem on the defense, you want to put him in scenarios to succeed. Drake Jackson is good enough to warrant a scheme change uh, based on his sole skill set. So that to me is just fascinating. And then like we talked about in the last podcast, the trickle down effect of that decision. How does that work out, right? If if Drake Jackson's standing up, then that means there's a smaller role for a Hunter Eccles or some of these other linebacker DN type bodies. Um, and then vice versa, if, if Drake uh, if Drake Jackson's standing up, then it gives another role for a a Connor Murphy or a Jake Tafilias. Are we going to play like a, a Nick Figueroa or something like someone like that? Their their role expands. So uh, I wasn't surprised at the comment. I expected him to be versatile. I just think it'll be interesting to see. One, how much does that change, or how, what, what's the split? Is it 70-30? Is it 60-40? Is it 50-50? One right. of those things. And then how does it change against scheme? When you're playing Stanford, is, is it going to change? 
is that scheme mentality going to change versus in Arizona? The answer there is yes, but just how much? So those are the questions we won't know for a little while, but I think we'll get good insight. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if the answer is different after spring ball day one than after spring ball day 15 as they kind of figure out who they are and install different uh, packages. Yeah, Orlando made a point that he didn't want to talk about individual players on Tuesday. He wants to see them practice, and that's understandable. So we didn't really ask about any guys. But I have asked around about Drake Jackson and his role, and I've been told that, that there is a thought that, that he could be kind of a, a hybrid defensive end, outside linebacker, kind of move around. But the the most important point I got back was that Orlando recognizes that this is the guy to build the defense around, and he is going to be a, a central figure in everything they do. So they recognize the asset they have there with Drake Jackson, and whatever they do is, is going to be to leverage and take advantage of his abilities. Let's, we'll go each position group first. Let's just start with the defensive line. To me, that's the strength of the defense. I mean, obviously, you get Jake Tefelli back, you get Marlon Tuipelotu back. You have the depth there. You bring in some interesting guys. Kobe Pepe uh, maybe is a guy that cracks rotation this year as a freshman. What stands out to you about the defensive line, and, and what do you want to see this spring from those guys? Yeah, I think it's along the lines of, uh, of the point we just talked about, but to go a different, uh, different angle, I think it's not out of the re- – I think it's very realistic to expect J2 Philly's statistical production to drop. And so just I, I'm, I'm interested to see that. And I say that because if he's asked to play more three down, or I guess let me preface that, if they go and play more three down, I think it's very realistic for Jay's production to drop. Obviously, Jay being an NFL guy, everyone's talking about um, kind of his next step. How does that sit out with him? He's still a fantastic football player. His production's still going to be at an elite level, but statistically it might not it might not match as much. But, uh, yeah, I just think to me the defensive line is, is pretty uh, – I don't have as many glaring questions or concerns. I think just to me, it's schematically more so than anything else. And then moving forward, kind of that next wave of guys, the Connor Murphys, the Nick Figueroa's, the Caleb Tremblay's, do they all take a next step? Um, I believe it was, uh, it may have actually been Graham Harrell mentioned like Caleb Tremblay's leadership, I think it was, or he made, he made a comment about that in the interview. It was one of the coaches. So like little factors like that, who becomes the leader of the room, that, that, that sort of stuff. That's interesting to me, but by and large, I'm pretty confident in the defensive line. Yes, you lose Christian Rector, but I think guys mature, guys grow, and uh, we'll see what Todd Orlando does there. Yeah, there aren't a ton of position battles there. You kind of know that Drake's locked in, Tufeli's locked in, Marlon's locked in, Brandon Peely's going to be the guy right behind them. Nick Figueroa will get some some reps. I guess it's if they're going to use two defensive ends, who is that second guy? Is Is it Tremblay? Is it Murphy? It's probably Caleb Tremblay. But there's not there's not a whole lot of intrigue in terms of I competitions. Guess, I guess Brandon Peely is interesting to me because if we rewind, rewind 12 months, he was kind of the, the when you talk about Peely or when you talked about Peely it was kind of he's the young guy, he's the guy maturing, he's the guy that can take a big step, that kind of thing. And it feels like that's not necessarily the narrative now, but it's definitely something he could still do. Obviously, now he's an older guy. Um, he's been there. I think those ideas of maturity and kind of taking huge steps, it's not as much of a thing when you get later in your career, but he still could have a huge role. Marlon's obviously the dude there, but if Brandon does kind of elevate his game, and let's say they do, do, three, they do more three-down stuff, there's a world where you have Brandon Peely as the nose, 
and then you stick Marlin at Marlin and Jay at the the three down defensive end defensive tackle spot, and then that's a lot of that's that's a lot of beef up front. There's a world where that makes sense because I think Marlin's athletic enough to do that. So Brandon Peely is a guy that's interesting to me because yes, he adds depth, but if he takes the next step, where then he, okay, he's now your clear cut third best defensive lineman. I'm not counting Drake Jackson as a true defensive lineman in that, but he's your third best after Marlon and Jay. Then there's a world where you can do some cool things. I think when you play some of these bigger teams, especially week one against an Alabama or a Stanford comes to mind or a Washington, uh, I guess I don't know the schedule on the top of my mind, but uh, if, if you if, if Brandon Pilly takes that next step, he could be an added element because I feel like he is the closest um, of those guys that could really uh, kind of elevate just because he's, he's got the skill set and there was a lot of intrigue on him early on in his career. And I'd only say it because I feel like it's, it, it's settled a little bit uh, lately. That's a fair point. I, I thought he was useful last year. And, and, and certainly uh, you never want to presume that a guy has, has reached the ceiling. So that's a good point. Um, all right, linebackers, probably the biggest question on this defense. Oh, yeah. What... What do you want to see this spring? What has your eye with that group? What has my eye with that group is uh, Raylan Goforth just got number 10. And I don't know how I – I know I played for the guy, but I forget exactly how Coach Helton handles numbers. But I know with, like, Lane Kiffin, uh, he doesn't just hand out numbers. And 10, that, that's got some lineage to it. That's Hayes Pollard. That's uh, Brian Cushing. Um, so they're like that, that number ten. That's got something. I John Houston as of late. So that's the leadership. That's the that's that's the number right there. So the fact that they gave him that kind of shows. All right, we're expecting you to kind of fill a role. And I know I'm probably reading into it a little bit too much. But I also just like I said, I I, I played for like, like 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 Lane Kiffin, and I don't think he would have given that number out to a guy that hadn't necessarily put it on the field yet. Uh, and, but maybe he has put it on the field, and he's doing it behind the scenes in practice, and we're not seeing it as much. But that to me just was interesting. Little side, side note. But, uh, no, I like it. I but, like yeah, it. there's there's go forth. I think EA uh, – I put EA in a similar tone that I just kind of talked about Brandon Peely in, in the fact that I think pre- previously you talk about EA as kind of a younger guy, right? He's maturing. He's, he's learning the ropes. He's learning the scheme. He's kind of figuring things out. Well, now he's an older guy. And EA, I mean, this is his defense. I mean, I think everyone's expecting him to be on the field every single down, uh, whether he plays Will or middle linebacker. I think it's going to be middle linebacker if I had to guess. But just how that 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 fits, that'll be interesting. And then from there, we saw pieces of Kanai Malga. I think he's definitely going to play a role. Does does he take a next step? And then are there guys that we are not talking about that that develop and that happens at the linebacker position guys get bigger guys get stronger guys get used to the scheme and so I think there is going to be an all-out battle at the linebacker position I know when I played at SC that's one position where it's really easy to kind of rotate guys in like your first your second even your third string guys it's really easy to rotate guys in just because I don't know linebackers kind of it's kind of a plug and play it's kind of a just hey just just go out there and, and, and ball out so I envision these first few weeks of spring ball it's probably going to be a lot of testing out, getting guys used to different things. And then from there, leadership-wise, knowledge-wise, guys will start to different, uh, to separate themselves. But it starts with EA, and that's the guy that uh, I think everyone's going to be focused on. Yeah, uh, you know, I was, I was buying as much EA stock last year as anyone, and I'm, I'm holding on to it. He didn't have the year that I thought he was going to have. I think everyone can agree with that. He was certainly hurt for part of that. I just think there's too much talent there, and you hope that Orlando, who is a linebacker guy, that's his area of expertise, he's always coached his own linebackers, that he's going to find a way to maximize what EA does well and unlock that next level of potential that 
we all think is there and we just haven't totally seen it consistently manifest yet. So I'm with you there. Um, There's a lot of violence in Pellier Neoteote. Yes. So if you yes. talk about it, if that's the buzzword, you better believe they're going to give every single opportunity, as they should, for number one to have success. Definitely. I, I like your point about Raylan Goforth in the number 10. I hadn't even thought about that. That is really interesting. He was a guy that I was as high on as anybody in that 2019 class. Because I had gone to see him play at St. John Bosco a couple times. And I just loved his instincts, his lateral range. I just thought he was a natural playmaker who was going to assimilate very quickly at the college level. We didn't get to even really evaluate him last year. Obviously, they closed practice to us, so we didn't see practice all fall. And he wasn't playing. And, and Clancy had this just uh, – he was very rigid about it. you're behind this guy. You only play if he comes out. It wasn't like uh, we're going to move you around and find a way to get you on the field. No, Raylan Goforth was behind John Houston, who never came up the field. Therefore, Goforth never played. He wasn't an option when EA was hurt or when Kanai was out. It was, no, this is your spot. So we don't know what he did last year. But I'm gonna I'm gonna buy some stock in your point there about the number that maybe that they know more than we do, and I wouldn't be surprised at all if he's a factor. The one guy you didn't mention that we is kind of a wild card. Don't, is don't say Jordan. it. Dang it! I knew you were gonna say it. I forgot about him. <laughs> I was sitting there. I was like, I hope he doesn't get it. That's a good point. Uh, Jordan ISF was gonna be a big uh, big factor, but no, I'll, I'll let you. I'll let you take the floor. <laughs> Well, and, and he's just a versatile guy, so I, I really don't even know what to expect in terms of, of where he would play or how he's going to be used. I mean, again, it's hard to project any of this until we watch a practice and we see how Orlando aligns these guys and we see what it looks like. It, it, we're just kind of guessing and, and reading into the statements and comments. I, I want to see it and then I'll better sense for things. But uh, Jordan's played in a variety of roles. He obviously set out all last year with a knee surgery. He's coming back for his last year. He's highly motivated to make the most of his last season. He's going to be a factor. Um, but I, I don't think anything's guaranteed for any of those guys. I, I don't think any of them have have the equity to, to say, I, I've earned the spot here. And I yeah. just based on what I took away from Orlando, I don't think that's his approach either. I think that's going to be the best competition we get this spring is all those linebackers and seeing where they fit, how they fit, and how they perform against one another. Yeah, and I mentioned the uh, <clears throat> the jersey number as a factor. Well, Jordan Iasefa, he was a captain, and it's really unheard of that a captain doesn't play, and it's ironic coming coming uh, coming from me in that regard because I was a captain when I backed up Sam at the time. But I say that point only because uh, you kind of sleep on that. Like there was a reason this the offseason last year, Iasefa gets captain. He's doing some good things. I know he was banged up and whatnot, but he's a vocal leadership guy. You better believe that holds weight when you're a new defensive coordinator trying to find a defensive a defensive identity. And Jordan Iasefa is wired in a leadership way in a leadership role. You better believe that gives him the edge, and uh, if it comes down to where it's comparable like that, and I would I would be hard pressed if if Jordan doesn't start, say, or is not a, a valuable player or like not a, a key impact player, it's probably hard for him to get captain again, which that's almost unheard of. Where you have a, you're a captain as a junior, maybe not as a senior, and I know his situation's unique. Don't get me wrong, I know. I know the whole uh, unexpected redshirt deal, but uh, that whole dynamic in terms of building a defense is fascinating to me. It is. It is. All right. Well, with the secondary, I don't know that we're going to have a ton of uh, surprises. I think we kind of know what we got there. 
obviously uh, totally new new staff back there evaluating these guys. Of course, they've they've all said that it's everyone's starting over. It's a fresh start. But we know that Elijah Griffin and Chris Steele and Isaac Taylor Stewart are going to get a lot of snaps at cornerback. The question there, I guess, would be how much does Dorian Hewitt improve on his role from last year? The staff last year was very high on him. Greg Burns loved Dorian Hewitt. Does he crack in the more of the mix there? It's going to be tough. At safety, I just don't see any way that it's not Hufanga and Polamau, barring injury. So we're, we're talking about depth and, and backups there and and everything else. So I, I don't yeah. know that I have a ton of, of, of intrigue or questions for the secondary in the spring. My intrigue is just with the, the fact that it's a great problem to have, but when you have depth, right? I mean, there's, there's no shortage of guys that can go out there and make impact. How, how do they handle that, right? Do they, do they try to get, like, you, right? You started by saying the, the three corners, right? OG, uh, ITS, and Chris Steele. Well, if there's a world where there are your three best defensive backs, I know Hufunga's out there, don't get me wrong, but is there a world where like you want all three of those guys on the field at once rather than one guy kind of being a rotational player? All those ins and outs, like how does it work with like the nickel? And I know you have um, guys in place there as well, but I just think there's a lot of bodies. So if you're Dante Williams, you have to be fired up about that. But just how that all is handled, that will be interesting to me because – a lot, every single, a lot, every guy you, you, you listed there and I've listed, they have game reps, they have stripes, they have experience to pull from. That's not necessarily the case with some of the linebacker room. Uh, so it's different there and just how they, how they manage that. And uh, they, 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 everyone says, oh, competition makes everyone better. I'm not always on that side, but I do think that the DB room is going to be a heated competition because all those guys want snaps and there's only four positions and I guess technically five if you're talking about the nickel to really, uh, to really account for. Well, to build off that point, I th- I think you're absolutely right, and I don't know that the three cornerbacks are going to be happy in a three-way split again. I think all those guys probably felt that they deserved even more snaps. Yep. And and you can't give one more snaps without giving another less snaps. And how does that play out? So I, I, I'll retract my statement previously and say that to me is an intrigue, but that probably won't really come into focus until the games start and we see who's actually playing when it matters. But as the season progresses, that's definitely a dynamic to monitor and to, to follow is how do they keep all those guys satisfied? And I know that's not their priorities to keep them satisfied, but whenever you're managing a team, you have to be cognizant of of the repercussions and consequences and offshoots of, of playing time decisions. Uh, one guy I, I didn't mention, I should just throw in there, uh, Max Williams. Uh, Max Williams was hurt a lot of last year. He played in a few games. I think he is one guy who could push for a bigger role. Uh, maybe he, he can earn more reps at, uh, at nickel there, competing with Greg Johnson or however they align things. But, but he's definitely a guy to watch. He, he's really talented, I thought. He looked comfortable when he was out there last year in his limited snaps, and I wouldn't be surprised if he's the guy, if he's the one guy that really changes his situation uh, in twenty twenty. Well, that's kind of crazy. If you talk, we have the three corners. You got Max Williams, um, and then you got both safeties. That's what's yep. that's what's seven. Chase Williams is eight. Dorian Hewitt's nine. Greg Johnson. Greg Johnson yep. is ten. You literally have. Uh, McCullough too, right? I'm trying to. He, he, he yeah. played a little bit last yeah. year. Yep. Literally eleven guys 
I'm trying Br- to make Britton Allen. Britton Allen, Allen played a little bit less. That's year. twelve defensive backs that have all had real life roles. That's uh, that's crazy. I, I want people to really realize that that's unheard of. I'm trying to think of a college roster that I was a part of that was even close. No, like when I was at SC, and granted, I was in the sanction era, so it was a little different. But you're trying to piece together kind of a two deep. That's a three. That's before the first practice of spring ball. Before you have any incoming DBs, you have a three deep. And I know that positions don't necessarily line up, but you have twelve guys. Four times three is 12. That's unheard of. So you better believe roster management, Clay Helton having conversations with these guys, checking in with these guys, Dante Williams, same same deal, right? Keeping everyone engaged. Um, that's going to be huge. And just saying that out loud right now, it would not surprise me at all if, uh, if, if, if transfers come as a result where guys are saying, hey, I know I can play, but I look at the depth chart and I don't want to be battling the rest of my career for, for, for reps here and there when I can go and have a, a big role elsewhere. I know that's yeah. not the mindset you want to hear, but just literally we listed 12 guys. That's got to be front of mind concern if you're Clay Helton trying to manage this roster. I, I think that eventually that's going to be a very real scenario. And all those guys – you mentioned played real minutes. You, you know, Hewitt made a start when both um, Elijah Griffin and Tim yeah. Stewart were out, I think, I think it was. Britton Allen came in late in that Colorado game for two major series when Burns pulled, pulled him out off the field to, uh, to teach him a lesson. Um, McCullough played some meaningful minutes. So it's not those guys play. They all played meaningful minutes. And some of those guys are probably happy that there's a new staff in here and a fresh evaluation to see what happens. Okay. Uh, we got to wrap up the defense really fast, but I just want to get your your three most compelling guys on the defensive side for spring practice. Yeah, um, I guess we kind of touched touch on us. I'll be I'll be quick. Uh, yeah. Raylan Goforth is is one for me. I just think the, the jersey number. I don't want to read into that too much, but just kind of the buzz that was with him last year. I think he's poised for a big step. It kind of I've I've seen this narrative before. It feels like he's that type of guy that after spring ball we could say, all right, now he's a real player. Number two is EA. I just think um, uh, I think Todd Orlando is going to give this kid every chance to succeed. I think he knows how like like it's it's the same reason Ryan that you're buying stock in him. The ceiling on this kid is extremely high. Number one uh, linebacker recruit out of high school. Uh, I just what's his development like in the spring with the new linebacker for focus DC? That's fascinating to me. And then my third is uh, literally what we just talked about. I have it written down right here as the DB shuffle defensive back. Okay. How does that whole work? I don't want to pick one guy because they're all fascinating to me. I think when I go to spring spring practice, just how the rotation goes. Because like you said, for every rep that someone gets, someone doesn't get a rep. How does that play out? I think that's a fascinating storyline this spring ball. Good stuff. Uh, mine real fast are number one, Drake Jackson. Uh, I, I just want to see it. I want to see how he's used. I want to see that he's a centerpiece, as we've been told he's going to be. EA, of course, is, is number two for me for everything we've already talked about. And three is, is Talano Hufanga, who we didn't really talk about a ton in that conversation, but is acknowledged as... He's a beast, the, if not, yeah. If not the most talented guy on that defense. And, and how does Tyler Lando and Craig Niver deploy him and, and find a way to get the most out of him? So those are my three on the defensive side, my most compelling storylines. All right, on offense, let's start with... Uh, obviously, you start with the quarterback situation JT Daniels uh, is not going to be a factor until the summer okay he's, he's still recovering from ACL meniscus surgery Graham Harrell said he's hopeful that maybe he could do some throwing on the side but he's not really a part of this spring practice and therefore that kind of defers that whole complicated if not awkward situation until August uh, Keaton Slovis himself is coming back from the strained elbow that occurred in the holiday bowl 
Graham said eight, eight tries to defer the question to Clay Helton, who we didn't get to talk to this week, but he said uh, what he tells me is he feels good, he, he looks good to me. But we don't know if Keaton's going to be limited in his reps this spring. This is kind of as a precaution. And if he is, who's throwing the balls? I mean, Matt Fink's the only other quarterback on the roster right now. They got the grad transfer, Mo Hassan from Vanderbilt. He's not coming in until the summer. Uh, they didn't sign anybody in his class. So it's it's those three guys. JT's definitely out. Keaton might be slowed. And then you got the reliable Fink. The reliable Fink. Yeah, no, I uh... – <laughs> To be honest, I hadn't really followed the quarterback storylines uh, since after the Holly Bowl. I just, I mean, I don't know. Uh, you, you move on. There's not much, not, not much football going on in January, and February. But I kind of forgot about the elbow deal, and I have a feeling I'm not the only listener yeah. that kind of, kind of had that deal. And the fact that it's still a talking point, I'm not stressed, but I'm a little concerned. Like I, I, the fact that it's, it is March, and we're still talking about the elbow, and I know it was a strain, and it's the throwing arm, and you got to be careful. But I was a little nervous there. That injury, I, w- I mean, to be honest, I'm glad it wasn't worse. I thought it was uh, – that, that yeah. could have been really, really bad. But the fact that that's still a factor, it's a little bit concerning to me. It makes this whole competition, which I don't think it's a competition at all, but this whole little battle deal uh, interesting. And then on the flip side – uh, I'm surprised Matt Fink is still on the team. And I don't know the ins and outs of his academics, but I'm pretty sure he posted a, something on Instagram. I'm pretty sure he's graduated and all that. So I was a little, I, I guess, I, like I said, I hadn't really followed it in like super detailed and I'm friends with Matt, but I guess I, I thought it was almost a given that he would transfer. So the fact he is in spring ball, because to me, the writing's on the wall a little bit. Maybe he's wired in a way where he's just going to be a Trojan for the rest of time. And, hey, I love that. Like, if, if that's how you are, uh, perfect. But I do think he has a skill set where he could go play somewhere uh, and, and make an impact. And so that dynamic is, is really interesting to me because with Slovis and Daniels being banged up, there's a world where Fink's taking, like, real-life first-team reps and practice doesn't function without him. And so he has a huge role, yet – I think, I mean, if we're just calling it a spade a spade, there's, I don't see a path where he becomes a starter. And so I'm just very intrigued with how those conversations go because, I mean, Matt, I mean, USC football is kind of uh, really relying on Matt Fink this spring. And that's assuming that, <laughs> yeah. uh, that's assuming that, that Slovis is, is maybe banged up or at least reserved a little bit because uh, the dumbest thing in all of this is if you are limited in quarterback uh, in, in arms you have, you force Keaton Slovis to throw more balls than he wants to, and then you get the you aggravate the elbow again. Because you better believe the front of mind concern for Graham Harrell right now is we know what we have in Keaton Slovis. I think he is 100% going to be the starter. I don't like I don't buy into this competition thing. Um, and you need him healthy, and so that that's number one coming out of spring. But all those storylines are fascinating to me and. Yeah, uh, that's just kind of a brain dump of where I'm at there. Well, we saw it last last year at spring ball where they had no defensive backs, and it really impacted what they could do on the offensive side because they, they were going against Brandon Purdue playing safety and, and, and walk-ons filling the secondary. So how is this going to impact the wide receivers getting ready for the season and – the defensive side of and the development of younger guys too like if you only have one quarterback arm i guess fink would then just do like every qb rep which that's he might he he might more power to him but but just it's interesting yeah but to go back back to your point sir i I don't want to infuse any fear about keaton slovis we just don't know yet again graham said he thought he was okay he just knows that he's not supposed to talk about injuries so he kind of left it for for helton to address next week clay may come out and say he's he's 110 percent. he looks like the same keaton and there's no worries we we, we just don't know yet so that's more of an unknown than a, a true concern but when that injury happened that's 
to me, is one of the scariest things for a quarterback is when that arm is back and it's starting to come forward with all that torque and force and someone restricts it and restrains it without them knowing. And they, they pull through, but they can't. That's, that's a surefire way to, to strain or, or tear ligaments and, and stuff in there. So I was relieved when I heard that it wasn't requiring surgery and it was a strain. But we'll know more next week. And uh, until we do see him looking like the Keaton of old, it's definitely a storyline. As far as Fink, there's, there's no path to him being the starting quarterback unless everyone gets hurt. But he's a valuable guy to have in this program because he has played in big moments. Uh, you're certainly thankful that he stayed around. I just kind of assumed when he pulled himself out of the portal last year that he was making the long-term decision, okay, you know what, I'm just going to finish out here and be a Trojan and enjoy it, and if I get a chance to get on the field like he did last year in several games, I'll do my best, and that's great. If he was going to leave to seek more playing time, last year was the time to do it. And honestly, the Utah film was great, but after the Washington film and the Iowa film, I don't know how attractive he would be to a program looking for immediate plug-and-play quarterback. So I, I think it makes sense that he's still here and that will be a valuable part of this uh, this program, a valuable resource to have, and, and he'll get to finish out at the school he loves. Okay, we, we got to cruise through these, but we will. Uh, running backs, we don't know who's cleared and who's healthy. Um, obviously, Marquis Stepp never came back from his, his ankle thing where he had he had surgery to repair the ligaments there from that that uh, injury uh everyone else came back late in the season you're gonna have all four guys you're gonna have Marquis step you're gonna have Stephen Carr by Malapai and Keenan Christian for the first time as really all established guys now like we never had that at any point because because Keenan didn't become established until everyone else was hurt and then Step never came back when once Keenan was established. So we've never had all four guys as known quantities with all that all bring value and and attributes and how they divide it up and use them. That that to me is highly intriguing this spring. Yeah, it's fascinating. I'm, I'm honestly sitting here trying to kind of wrap my head around it. I think it's a similar conversation to the defensive backs, and I think it's going to be a lot of like roster management. But the reality is, we saw it in the back half of that season. Uh, Graham Harrell wants to throw the rock. That's that's who he is. And so uh, it'd be one thing if we were talking, okay, the, the USC of the 2000s where, yes, there's definitely a role for, like, two backs to have strong, strong impacts. Well, now, like, the, the carries are just the carries are just limited, and there's, there's no scenario in my hand where four running backs play. They tried to do three last year, and it works. I mean, it, it, it's fine. Obviously, you have injuries like it happened last year. You're glad you have all those guys, but – uh, we talked about it a bunch last fall. You're super bought into, or I shouldn't say it. We are both bought into Marquis Step. You think there, he there sh- you go. You think he <laughs> should be the clear, like clear cut one if it happened today and everyone's healthy. I'm not yes. against that. I think I just I, I see the other guys there, but that that that, uh, that element is a, a healthy Marquis Step based on what he did last year. He I, I can't blame uh, Graham Harrell if he did start Marquis Step. That makes total sense in my mind. But then as a result, the trickle-down effect, how does that affect a Stephen Carr? Is he here long-term? Like, Because obviously Stephen Carr, he's a special back as well. Um, all those guys are. That's just a fascinating storyline to me. And uh, I definitely agree. The ceiling on Marquis Step is probably the highest at this point because Stephen Carr and Vi, they've, they've been around the block a little bit. They've been there for a couple years. So uh, the progression of Marquis Step, we saw big. Now, he was a storyline last spring uh this spring can he can he can he uh piggyback on that and hey if guys miss spring ball and are injured 
that's a big factor as well because every rep and every day uh, is very important for kind of solidifying their role on the team. Yeah, I, like you said, you can't, you can't play four running backs. And, again, that's a storyline that we're not going to be able to fully uh, sink our teeth into until the fall when we see who's playing in the games and when who the fourth guy is, gets no carries in the first game, how does he handle that? So that's not really a spring storyline, but it's it's definitely out there on the horizon, on the, on the periphery. Uh, and it's a really, again, like the quarterbacks, a complicated thing for them to manage. I think the only storyline in the spring for me would probably be the development of Keenan Christian and how he, he progresses. Has he put on weight? Does he look bigger? Uh, and does Marquise look healthy? Those Good are kind point. of the things to look for there. Uh, the receivers, they lose Michael Pittman. They bring everyone else back, and they add. They add Brew McCoy. They add Kyle Ford. They add Gary Bryant, the early enrollee. What a fun group. I mean, you don't replace Michael Pittman, but you also don't downgrade this unit at all, in my eyes, from last year. Yeah, and this is why, and I've said this uh, on every national radio thing I do, but this group's a big reason why you can have – I guess I shouldn't even say this group. The running backs and the receivers and the, the whole entire offense is the reason USC has an argument for being the best offense in the country going into the season. There's, you don't even have to hedge it. And I know Clemson's out there and what Clemson has, but I'm serious. And obviously we'll get into offensive tackle. I'm, I'm with you. That, that's a huge question. You. But these receivers are loaded. I don't think they take a step back. That's why I hope Keaton Slovis is healthy. I hope they don't split reps and do all that stuff, which they probably are going to do. But I would go full speed ahead. Like Keaton Slovis is your guy. Let's have him drive the car. You have these receivers. You have these backs. You'll figure out the offensive line. This offense, as everyone knows, can be extremely lethal. These receivers, you, you got to love it. And most of them, we kind of know what we're getting, right? Tyler Vaughns, we know. Amon Ross St. Brown, we know. Um, some of these other guys, Drake London, we saw a bunch last year. I guess the progression of like a John Jackson uh, and some of those younger guys. And then the, the intrigue with Brew McCoy and Kyle Ford. I'm assuming that... One, if not both, will take a big step, fill a big role, and I have I have no concerns at the receiver spot. Yeah, I think you're going to see Ford McCoy as factors this year. I just I want to see how they're used, where, where they line up, um, and how much of a rotation they're willing to go to now. Where you know you weren't taking Michael Pittman off the field last year, and and really the same with St. Brown and Vaughn's. Are you more inclined to? balance things out and get these really intriguing young guys on the field? I don't know. Uh, to me, the biggest storyline of the receivers, though, is Gary Bryant. He is something they didn't really have last year. He's kind of what we thought that Valus Jones might be able to be, but never got the chance. Uh, they kind of went, went away from having that, that speedy guy out of the slot. Gary Bryant is dynamic. He, is, he was USC's highest-rated signee. He was their only... Uh, top 25 California signee, a four-star prospect from Corona Centennial. He just glides on the field, and he I just can't see him not getting involved immediately. He's too talented, and they don't have anything like him. They don't have another Gary Bryant. I mean, to, to a degree, um, you know, Amon Ra, Vaughns, Ford, McCoy, they're all different, but Gary Bryant's more different than any receiver they have. And I just think that they're going to find a way to utilize his speed. And, and that's my biggest intrigue there for the spring. Um, real quick, tight ends. 
Spring football is the annual time to renew the, is this the year they throw to the tight ends more <laughs> storyline? Yeah. And I thought it was interesting talking to John David Baker, who takes over as tight ends coach. And I kind of just assumed last year that, that maybe they just didn't feel that that was important and that they had Drake London who could kind of operate like a pass-catching tight end might. Uh, they had Crumlin Hoke as the blocker. But Baker this week said no. Like that's, Our preference is to be an 11 personnel. It, go back to North Texas and look, look at the guy we had our senior year. He had 29 catches, almost 300 yards. Like we, He played 85% of the snaps. We want a guy like that ultimately in this offense, but someone has to prove that they make the offense better by being out there. And he said last year we just ultimately felt that having four true wide receivers was our best offense. And I think it may be the same way again. We'll see. But they're not close to the idea of a tight end being more involved in the passing game. It just is not going to be forced. Exactly. And I think – no, I echo everything you said. I think if you have – if you have the receivers SC has, there's a very plausible scenario where four receivers is just a better offensive philosophy than sticking a tight end on the field. The one interesting part, and I'm sure you're going to get there, is just with Daniel uh, Imorta Bebe yes. back. He is the most yes. – he's a guy I played with. I was there with him for a couple years. <laughs> Excuse me. He's the most dynamic guy, right? If Eric Cromahoke is more of a blocking tight end and Josh follows more of a receiving tight end – well, insert Daniel Mortabebe like right in the middle. And we all saw what he could do back in 2016, I think it was. It's crazy that that was uh, that many years ago. But he's back. He, to me, is the wild card. I think I think if it's if Eric Krumenhoek and Josh Follow kind of stay on their paths and do what they're doing, I think SG's going to go four receivers a lot because they have so many great receivers. It's not a knock against the tight ends. It's just the fact that these receivers are so elite. But if Daniel Mortabebe is that, hey, I, I block – I, I run routes, I'm physical, I'm older, I'm mature, I'm a great presence, then that's, to me, the most fascinating thing. And, uh, that's, yeah, I'm, that's, uh, that, that's a huge storyline for sure. Yeah, so he, he played 2016-2017, missed the last two years with injury, wasn't even on the roster last year, just like, wasn't part of the program. It was back. And I'm going to tell you the buzz I've gotten is that there are people in that building that think he's going to be an impact addition. Uh, this is not just – another tight end of the mix. This is a guy that they're going to have to find a way to use. And that he's also perhaps versatile enough to even line up out wide at times. He's got to give them some options. So I definitely think that Daniel Imanarbebe is going to be a factor this year, just based on the buzz and excitement I've heard about him. But again, no one's seen him in a practice in two years. So let's not go too far off the hype train with that. We'll see what happens. Lastly, offensive line, obviously the biggest question for another why for a unit that otherwise has no questions, what happens with the two tackle spots? We presume that Jalen McKenzie will slide out to right tackle full time. He played it a lot last year. Um, it just makes sense. They have enough depth at guard. Andrew Voorhees should be back. I'm not sure if he's going to be active in spring. He had the foot surgery in the fall, but he's he's back in 2020. Uh, obviously, Liam Jimmins is there. Um, Justin Dedich can play can play guard if he's not going to get any reps at center behind Brett Nealon. And then Elijah Vera Tucker. What I thought was interesting Tuesday, talking to Graham Harrell, is that he seems open-minded to Elijah Vera Tucker sliding the left tackle. And we had talked about this before, and, and you made a good point that Elijah is looks like a guard. He's a prototypical guard, the way he's built. Yeah. But if they don't have a better option out there and – their best fives that haven't been left tackle, they're at least open to that. 
Totally. And I think, uh, yeah, Graham made the comment multiple times is it's about finding your best five. And I think that's genuinely the truth. Uh, but like you said, some guys are more uh, conducive, their body's more conducive to playing tackle. And uh, yeah, I just think it's big. Uh, last year, a lot of those guys were kind of the same age. I think this spring ball, one of those younger guys, the guys that were either freshmen or redshirt freshmen last year, or then maybe even a high school kid, or I guess a, a, a to-be true freshman this year, if one of those guys can step up and be another body to add depth, a name we're not necessarily talking about, to me that's huge. And um, yeah, offensive line was a big question question mark last year. And once again, it's going to be the uh, the big question mark on the offense this year, especially when there are literally no questions at any of the other positions. It would have really helped if one of these six offensive lines, honeys, was going to be here in the spring. Unfortunately, they all come in the summer, so they're not going to get any early work. And Harold was asked if one of them could be a realistic option this year early on. And I think he was pretty telling in his response that, you know, that's the one position where it's really hard to step right in and play, especially, you know, physically, uh, you're not there very long. So I, I think he was kind of saying not likely, at least early on. So I think they're going to have to find their answers from within. They're also pursuing Akron grad transfer Brandon Council, uh, who is a guard by trade but played some tackle last year. I think if you know a lot of schools are after him right now. He's going to visit this month at some point. He, he's visiting Baylor this week. I talked to him. He's going to visit USC. He's intrigued by it. And you can always use an extra body there. Again, they have depth at guard, but if they're going to be moving guys around and having an extra versatile guy who can play multiple spots would be an asset, so they'll pursue him. So we'll see what happens there. I, my expectation for spring is that we see a lot of guys playing different positions and, and, and them trying out different different rotations and, and alignments and, and seeing what meshes the best together. Totally, and I think it's a good sign that uh, they're going to move guys around, but center is pretty locked in. When you have Neil and Andy, yeah. that, that's that. if you're an offensive line coach, that to me helps you sleep at night because, yes, you need to find your best five, but in some combination you already know your center. and that. So the fact that that's not a, a, a big concern is uh, is definitely comforting. All right, well, just to close real fast, our three most compelling guys or, or storylines on the offense are? Uh, let, let, let me let uh, you start. I think we might dif- uh, differentiate on this okay. one. Okay. Uh, my number one is, is the tandem, Brew McCoy, Kyle Ford. Which one emerges? Which one says proves, listen, I'm, I'm too talented to not be involved in the offense this year. I'm going to be a factor. I don't know if it's going to be both of them, one or the other. Really intrigued to see them. Number two for me is Daniel Amarabebe for the reasons we talked about. Just he's he's just always been a physical, athletic, just talent. And everything I hear is that he has not lost that. He's still as dynamic athletically as before, even after the injuries. And he's obviously coming back for a reason as a redshirt senior. It's not to be the the fourth string tight end. So see what happens there. And then again, Gary Bryant for me. I, I think once fans see this guy play, they're gonna want to see more of him. He's also a guy that I would really love to see get a true chance to take over return duties. Uh, he, he's just he's just so he, he's a smaller guy, but he's just so elusive and fast, and he's just he's gonna be a lot of fun. Those are my three. My three, we're agreement on uh, Daniel Morta Bay, but the only thing I'd add there is just to kind of take SC fans back a few years. Uh, don't forget that Daniel is the reason that a Kerry Angeline, who's now doing great things at NC State, and a Caleb Wilson, who's now an Arizona Cardinal, transferred out of SC because they, oh, they kind right. of all pass went through Daniel Morta Bay. They said, hey, we're not going to ever jump him. 
And uh, obviously there's more factors than, than just that, but that was obviously a huge one at that point in time. So that's the only other tidbit I would add there. Uh, second intriguing uh, player for me is, is Liam Jimmins. I think when I talk around to people, they're, they're excited about him, right? Last year was kind of, hey, he's still doing that transition phase. Well, this year, can he now be, all right, now he's an offensive lineman. And so if he, when he's an offensive lineman, does he have a role? He probably, I mean, he has a high ceiling relative to some of these guys, and he has the body type to play tackle if that were to exist in, in some form or fashion. So he, him to me is just a very in, intriguing guy. I played with him, so I know his mental makeup. So uh, I, I think he could play a role there. That just is, is fascinating to me. And then the third guy or the third tier is um, not one specific guy, but just like I said, one of those younger offensive linemen. So a guy we're not talking about right now, can someone step up? So is it a, a, a Liam Douglas, a, a Jason Rodriguez or something? A, a freshman body that, that was not on anyone's radar last year, if they step up and can fill one of the tackle roles or add depth, that's huge to me because one thing that SC was very luck- fortunate with last year is injuries were relatively a non-issue. I know there were a couple, but the, 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 those rosters were, the, the, those starting, that starting line was relatively thin. It was kind of six strong, and they never had to d- tap into anything uh, farther than that. I don't think that's going to be the case year over year, and they need to be prepped to kind of dive into a scenario where, where a couple guys are banged up and young guys need to be ready to go. Great stuff. I can't wait to see it in action next week. We'll come back to you maybe in a couple of weeks after we've gotten some some tangible stuff to evaluate and uh, and rehash some of these talking points in a different way. But this was fun. Sounds good. This was fun. I'll see you, see you on the practice field.